Well, let's begin with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, pour down on your church the holy wisdom that comes from above, that we may learn and grow in your word, grow closer to Christ, and increase in love for one another, and grow in willingness and in service to glorify you, to help those in need. Shine your light on us in our dark world and in our own personal darkness. Enlighten us and lift us up and empower us for your glory, for our good. Amen. Okay, we are in John chapter 8. And uh, last time I said John chapter 8 is a very important and it's a very interesting chapter. Uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 8 are kind of a break. In chapter 7 we were getting kind of this intense dialogue back and forth with Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, and then we have Jesus with the woman who was caught in adultery. And then after that, you're back at it again. Uh, but John chapter 8, uh, there is, oh, I don't know a good way to talk about it. There's a text problem. And... If, uh, I think most of you have either EHV or NIV 84. If you've got a Concordia Bible, that's an 84. NIV 2011 uh, has, uh, treats the first 11 verses of, Mar of John 8 a little differently. They put that whole section in italics and then there's a note that says, uh, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part, or in other places. And uh, what does this mean? Uh, I think I talked about this last time that. Uh, until about 1439, Gutenberg, uh, all books were handwritten. And you go back to the first century, everything was handwritten. And some of it wasn't in a book. Some of these were scrolls, some of these things were uh, bundles of paper. Because these things were handwritten, did you ever have to, oh, like when you were in school, you ever have to copy out paragraphs of things? And how well did you do? I remember my seventh and eighth grade teacher had us write out a paragraph. There's a time for work and a time for play. Knowing when to do each builds character and maturity. And write that out. 20 times. And how well do you do? Well, handwriting it, you might leave out a word, you might leave out a line, uh, and if it's a long thing, you might leave out a page. Uh, so what does that mean for us and biblical inerrancy and the, the integrity of the Bible. Uh, well, uh, the EHV, I like the way they talk about the different manuscripts. They talk about them as witnesses to the text. And uh, a little history, back in the 1840s, uh, somebody found a manuscript 
two manuscripts in a monastery near Mount Sinai. And uh, all the scholars were impressed. Oh, these look like the very best uh, New Testament texts. They even had Old Testament texts, too, but in Greek. And they said, these look like the best ones we've ever seen. Well, in the Gospels, <clears throat> they're good, but they're not perfect copies. Somebody leaves out a word. There's a couple places where somebody skipped a line or when somebody wrote the same line twice, they would, they would write in columns, very strict width columns. And anyway, these two manuscripts, they're called Aleph and B. Imaginative names that they gave them, uh, letter names. Anyway, they, these scholars said these are the best we've ever seen, uh, but they're not perfect. And those manuscripts leave out this first part of John 8. Uh, when I was in the seminary, what they taught us is when you're studying about uh, studying these manuscripts and our Greek New Testaments, like our English Bibles, we have footnotes, but the, the Greek New Testament has footnotes that say uh, P46 has a slightly different reading, or Aleph and B omit this, or whatever, so that you can see what variations there were in the text. Uh, but anyway, uh, these two texts that happen to leave out John uh, 8, 1 to 11, there are only two. Uh, what they taught us in the seminary is you want to look for the oldest copies, but also what readings are widespread. something is obviously a later copy. They can determine that by the style of handwriting, the type of ink, the type of paper, if it's papyrus, if it's parchment, what was used at the time. Uh, and so you want to look at the oldest copies that you can find. Uh, anyway, older copies, widespread copies, there are some that do include John chapter 8, 1 to 11. Uh, and uh, somewhere I heard comparing the New Testament to other ancient writings. Uh, well, let's do a guessing game. Uh, Caesar's Gallic War. Anybody ever have to do Latin in high school? I think I asked this last time. Not too many. Uh, we had to learn, read Caesar's Gallic War. Caesar marches into France, France and visits the Belgians and the Gauls and all of that. How many copies do you think, how many ancient copies do you think there are of Caesar's Gallic War? Just guess for fun. Yeah, one or two. How many copies, ancient copies, do you think there are of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament? How much more? A lot more? Yeah, how much a lot more? Keep going. Uh, thousand? Keep going. Ooh. Five thousand? And keep going. There are something like 10,000 different manuscripts uh, from, oh, let's say the year 800 and before. And uh, yeah, there are some things that 
you know, either a spelling mistake or a missing word or a missing verse. But for the most part, you know, there's like 99.9% .9 agreement in the text. Uh, can we reconstruct what's, what was the original by looking at all of these copies? Yeah, we can. Uh, there are a few places where in a late manuscript you can see, okay, that was a, a copying mistake and judging by uh, the kind of mistake it was, okay, that came up about maybe the year 600. And those kinds of things are obvious if it's just in one uh, area of the world and after a certain period of time, you can see, okay, that's where that came from. But uh, I like the way the EHV talks about witnesses to the text. You look at each handwritten copy as a witness to the text. Uh, and so can we read our Bibles confidently knowing that we have the word, words of the prophets and the words of the apostles? Absolutely. I think last time I talked about how the Old Testament uh, scribes did it. That they would write, uh, handwrite, let's say the book of Genesis, and then at the end there would be a little paragraph that says, the book of Genesis has 20,386 words, and uh, the middle word is sheep, whatever. Uh, the middle letter is J, or whatever, and that they were that meticulous about copy. And I think I've talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls before. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1948, something like that. 48. And all the scholars were saying, oh, now we will see how much biblical text has changed because the oldest copies of Old Testament texts we had were from around the year 1000. The Dead Sea Scrolls were from the time of Christ or slightly before that, like 100 BC. And uh, scholars were saying, oh now we'll see how much the text has changed in that time between then and the oldest copies we previously had. And guess what? They were the same. They had not changed this system of counting how many words and how many letters and all of that worked. Um, so uh, people were very meticulous. They treated the sacred texts as, as sacred texts. So can we read John chapter 8 confidently? Absolutely. Uh, and if you want to learn more about that, if you go to the Wartburg Project site, uh, they've got essays on all this kind of stuff. Uh, okay, uh, we're in uh, 8 verse 1. Well, if we go back just a little bit, uh, Jesus was at the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Festival of Shelters. Uh, and uh, remember that was one of these festivals where everybody, or many, many people, would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And I just scrolled wrong here. There we are. Uh, and so Jesus has this somewhat hostile banter with the Pharisees. Uh, and then at the end of chapter 7 it says then everybody went home and then chapter 8 starts out but then Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives that's where Gethsemane is and beyond the Mount of Olives uh, going to the east from Jerusalem going to the west from Jerusalem uh, would be Bethany. And so 
when we get to Holy Week, it seems like he's retreating to Bethany at the end of each day. So uh, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Maybe he went to Bethany then. Uh, spent the night with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and then comes back. So uh, verse 2, early in the morning he came back into the temple courts and all the people kept coming to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and had her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to test him so that they might have evidence to accuse him. Now let's pause there. What do you think would have happened if Jesus would have said, uh, you're right, go ahead, stoner. They were going to criticize him either way. Yeah. With, you know, whichever way. Well, one thing, remember, at this time we have already been hearing they were plotting to kill him. Uh, so they bring this woman caught in adultery to uh, Jesus, and they said, uh, Moses commanded us to stone people caught in adultery, what do you say? If he would have said, okay, go ahead, stoner, who had something to say about the civil law among the Jews at that time? The Romans. The Romans. And when we get into the, uh, the crowd in Pontius Pilate's courtyard, uh, in John 18 and 19, uh, Pilate says, why are you bringing him here to me? And he says, because we can't put anyone to death. So Jesus says, okay, go ahead, stoner. He's in trouble with the Romans. What if Jesus would say, no, do not stoner, let her go. happened then? It would be accused of breaking Moses' law. Okay, you're breaking the law of Moses and you're encouraging too much leniency. Uh, okay. What if Jesus would have said, according to Moses, she should be put to death, but we can't because of the Romans? Jesus would have said that. You're not patriotic. You're not uh, supporting make Israel great again. Uh, you're, you're, you're a Roman sympathizer. You're just like those tax collectors. Uh, you're wimpy. Uh, it was it was the kind of situation that if Jesus says one thing, he's in trouble. If he says the opposite, he's in trouble. If he tries to steer down the middle, he's in trouble. Uh, so uh, it was uh, a well-thought-out trap. Uh, so second part of verse 6. Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. Isn't that interesting? When they kept asking him for an answer, he stood up and said to them, Let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. Son of God doodles in the dust with his finger. 
They're all intense. Well, what do you think we should do? And he's drawing something in the dust. What what do you think he's doing there? Give him time to think. Yeah, he's all knowing too. So maybe giving giving them time to think, but it's also they want to get in a big argument with him. And he doodles in the dust. He's ignoring them. Yeah, he's he's sort of ignoring them. He does give an answer, but. Uh, it's kind of like, I'm not going to engage in this. Not now. Uh, like now is not my time like and it was. That, and that comes up again and again in this chapter too. My time has not yet come. Uh, it's, it's still October. He has to get to April. Uh, so... Uh, I think the doodling in the in the dust, I think it means that he's not going to engage them. He's not going to play their game. And then look at what he answers. Let the one among you who is without sin be the first first to throw a stone at her. Uh, when people in the Old Testament were stoned or punished for one offense or another. Uh, do you know how that worked? Who was supposed to be the first one to throw a stone? Maybe the one wrong? That's, Not really. That's a, that's neat idea. That's not quite what they did. Actually, it's in Deuteronomy 17, where it talked about witnesses. If somebody sees somebody doing, breaking a Sabbath or committing adultery or, or whatever it was, the one who, the witness who brought the charge would be the first to throw a stone. So by saying it this way, what's Jesus making them think? And maybe what's he revealing? They all have sinned. Okay. And did any of them witness it? <coughs> Likely not. Uh, he knew their motivation. And so by what he says, he's, he's basically saying, none of you saw this, this doesn't fit under the law of Moses, and you brought her here for another reason, didn't you? Uh, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Uh, then, he, then he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. on that. I'm not going to argue beyond this. Uh, verse 9 and 10. When they heard this, uh, they went away one by one, beginning with the older men. Jesus was left alone with the woman in the center. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Anything come to mind with verse 9? They, they went away one by one, the older ones first. Well, those of us who are getting older, we like to say with age comes... Wisdom, sometimes. Okay. And so when Jesus answered the way he did, 
the older ones got it first. And the younger ones are probably more hot-headed. And they took a little longer to cool off and understand, okay, we're not going to get in this time. They, so they went away, the older ones first. And then Jesus stands up and says, where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? Uh, this is something, whenever I'm reading the Gospels, uh, I'm always amazed. Jesus asks questions. Why? He knows all the answers. But he asks questions anyway. Uh, and the reason he asks questions is either to make somebody think or to engage them in a conversation. So where are they? Has no one condemned? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on do not sin anymore. Uh, that last phrase, what does that last phrase say about forgiveness? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Forgiveness is for everybody? Okay. For any sin? something I, I always go back to. Uh, does forgiveness mean that the bad thing you did never happened? No, that's kind of funny, isn't it? You can't, you can't really erase the past. Does forgiveness mean uh, that the bad thing you did wasn't really that bad? No. no. Uh, does forgiveness mean that you now have permission to do the bad thing? No. Does forgiveness mean you've been given a pardon and it won't be held against you? Yes. Yeah. And so Jesus forgives the sinner without excusing the sin. Uh, this reminds me of uh, Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 19, uh, that was one of the Pharisees' main complaints about Jesus. Is he, he hangs around with tax collectors. Uh, and, well, what, we have the account of Jesus hanging around with tax collectors, with Zacchaeus. And it was when Zacchaeus said, Everything I've cheated, I will all pay it all back. Uh, I won't be cheating people anymore. Then Jesus said, now salvation has come to this house. Uh, Jesus is forgiving. That does not mean he excuses sin. So after the first verse, 11 verses of chapter 8, who is Jesus? He is God. He's God. And how does he do, what does he display here about him, himself, about his nature, about his nature as God? Loving and forgiving. Okay, he's the one who forgives sins. As he's dealing with his enemies, what does he do? he show us that he knows? Turn the other cheek. Okay. Yeah, that, that kind of, that yeah. he's, he knows 
because he's God, he knows their their motives. Yeah. Because he's all knowing, because yeah. he's God, and he, like Lloyd said, turns the other cheek. Yeah. He knows their motivation, and he also knows what's left of their consciences. So he says, anybody without sin, be the first to throw the stone at her. That makes them think of the law of Moses that said, the witness should be the first to throw the stone, and none of us saw it. We just thought this was a, an opportunity to get it. None of you is without sin. Then, uh, continuing with verse 12, uh, there are many places in the Gospel of John, and there have been Bible classes on these, the I am statements of Jesus. Uh, we had that in chapter 6 already, I am the bread of life. And later in chapter 8, we'll have another statement, an interesting statement, when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Uh, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, so this is... Uh, another one of those I am statements. When Jesus spoke to them again, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, I always think that that's one of those golden verses, isn't it? Uh, this is a who is Jesus moment. Who is Jesus, the light of the world? Uh, something, remember I talked about John and his cycles? That he talks about one subject and then sometimes comes back to it. Uh, back in chapter 1, John talked about the light shines in the darkness, and darkness cannot overcome it. In John's letters, John writes about light and darkness a lot, too. Uh, what are we talking about? What is Jesus talking about when he says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but have the light of life? What do light and darkness mean here? Heaven and hell. Good and evil. Good and evil. Uh, I always, always think of it this way. We see this in the Old Testament too. The people, Isaiah 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, you get up at night and for some strange reason you don't turn the light on. But you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water or check on the weather or whatever it is. And you don't turn on the light, what sometimes happens? You stub your toe or you find out exactly how tall the coffee table is. It comes right there on the shin. Or the grandkids were over and they got out their Legos. Lego blocks are about the worst. Uh, only thing worse than a, uh, a Lego block is a, a bottle cap with the sharp side up. <laughs> In the dark, you find all of these dangerous things. Uh, it's dangerous. You can stumble into things. Turn on the lights, you know where you are. Uh, you can see where everything is. Uh, 
And think of in the ancient world, uh, in the middle of the night, all you have is an oil lamp. Oil lamps at that time, it was just like a bowl with a little corner pinched on it, and you have a little wick, like maybe a piece of rag. And because it's an open flame, you've got to be very careful with it. But even then, it doesn't give you a lot of light in the darkness. So, uh, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. You're not going to stumble through life. You're not going to find all of these dangers because you're walking in the darkness. Uh, I think of our world and I think of how sometimes you see people stumbling in darkness, going from one bad thing to another. either because of their desire for self or their lack of knowledge of what's good or whatever it may be. It's like they're stumbling in the darkness. They, they run into a, a table, they step on a Lego, they do one thing or another that ends up being destructive to them and they just seem to be stuck in that pattern, walking in darkness. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Somebody remember the biblical shading of that word life? It means more than your heart's beating, your lungs are breathing. Psalm when it says he restores my soul an alternate translation could be he restores my life so soul life uh, but life the, uh, Adam and Eve the, the day you eat from that tree you will surely die they fall over dead they live about 900 more years after that yeah but what happened their connection to God was broken. The holy image of God within them died. Uh, many times in Old and New Testament, life is a word that talks, talks about our connection to God. I am the vine, you are the branches. That's a connection uh, picture of life. So. Uh, Whoever follows me will, will, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, you'll have the guidance, the direction that comes from being connected to God. And so that golden verse of Jesus is now followed by a sour note from the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees said to him, you testify about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus says, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is valid because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. Uh, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I were to judge, my judgment would be true because I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is valid. I am the one who testifies about my, myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Uh, what testimony of the Father is Jesus pointing to? Baptism? When the Father said 
Oh, his baptism. No, Jesus' baptism. At Jesus' baptism, the Father says, This is my beloved Son. And on Palm Sunday afternoon, uh, Jesus looks up and says, Father, glorify your name. And then it thunders and a voice is heard saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Uh, there's that testimony of the Father. What else is Jesus doing? That you could say this is testimony from the Father. A couple chapters earlier, he goes to the pool of Bethesda, and what does he do? Hey, buddy, you want to get well? Pick, pick up your mat and go home. Uh, he does miracles. And then they complain about it. He's doing these things on the Sabbath. But he feeds thousands. He heals the, the paralyzed. Uh, he does all kinds of things that only God can do. Uh, this is the testimony of the Father, too. Uh, the miracles that he does. Uh, and so Jesus talks about uh, the Father who sent me. We've seen this before and we'll see it again. He keeps saying, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. I'm not here to do my own thing. Uh, and this, uh, this section too might be one of those, kind of like Nicodemus, Jesus talks about a new birth, and Nicodemus gets confused, and he thinks of a different kind of new birth, and, and Jesus keeps it going. The woman at the well, he talks about living water, and she gets confused and thinks of some miraculous water uh, that she won't have to keep coming to the well. Jesus talks about the bread of life, and the crowd thinks that Jesus is going to give them another free lunch. He keeps the conversation going. Here Jesus talks about the Father. And they're confused about that. Uh, verse 19. Uh, they say, where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the offering box, but no one arrested him because his time had not arrived yet. That's, there that is again. Uh, who's in control of the pacing of all of this? Uh, Pharisees, as much as they rage, they're not in control of all of this. Jesus is pacing himself in all of this. So he told them, I'm going away, you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. We had something similar to this in chapter 7. Uh, and then, as we had in chapter 7, Jesus' enemies get all kinds of strange ideas, and they're going all over the place. Instead of simply listening to Jesus. Verse 22, the Jews asked, he won't kill himself, will he? Because he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. That is why I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am the one, you will die in your sins. And now the member, our, our key, our theme question is, who is Jesus? Well, now they ask, well, who are you? And who had he just told them? He 
and said, I am the one, or I am he. Uh, he is the one who comes from above. He's the one, and this is, remember we're also looking for bits and pieces of John 3.16. <coughs> uh, you see a little bit of John 3.16 and at the end of verse 24. It's kind of stated in a negative way rather than a positive way. So, those who believe in him will not perish. If you do not believe, you will die in your sins. Who are you? The anointed one. Yeah. Yeah. Anointed one. Yeah. The anointed one. Uh, the one. Uh, but Jesus is telling them plainly who he is. Uh, and he doesn't go into a whole lot of detail. He just says, you are from below. I am from above. Uh, sometimes I think, what was it? Because it's Jesus, of course it wasn't frustrating. He knew how to, how to do it. He knew how to explain as much as he could. But I, I always wonder, what, wouldn't it be frustrating for Jesus, who knows heavenly things, how do we tell the people about these heavenly things? Uh, imagine trying to explain uh, life on land to a fish. Yeah, you walk from place to place. Walk? What do you mean by walk? We, we flap our tails and we... We swim through the water. Well, we don't have water up here. We have we have air. Air, what's that? Uh, water, if we want water, we go to a faucet and we turn a knob and the water comes. Water's all I know, fish would say. Uh, well, how can we understand heavenly things? Uh, Jesus doesn't get into too much. He just simply says, I'm from above and you're from below. Um, verse 28, we've got a little bit. This reminds me of uh, right before John 3.16. As Moses lifted up the, uh, the serpent in the desert, the Son of Man will be lifted up. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one, and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak exactly as the Father taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him. There you have that theme repeated two, three times. The one who sent me is not here to do his own thing. And I think that ties into him being the Lord's anointed. Remember the anointed, an anointed one meant, meant that a person was appointed by God to do special work for God's people. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And then we have another golden verse from Jesus. Uh, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you remain in my word, you are really my disciples. You will also know the truth, and the truth will set you free. First, we look at the, the, the tense of the verb at the beginning of verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. What does the past tense mean? Anymore. Not anymore. Uh, kind of like the crowd that wants the free lunch and then some of them walk away and Jesus says, you are the whole, Peter says, you are the Holy One of God. 
You're not going to leave too, are you? So, to the Jews who had believed in him, he says, if you remain in my word, you are really my disciples, or if you continue in my word. Uh, what does remaining in his word mean? Trusting him and all he tells us. Trusting him? Continuing to hear the word. Remember, there were some Jews who had believed in him, not anymore. Okay, continue to hear his word with faith. Uh, then verse 32. Uh, I think this is an interesting verse because of how people have misused it, maybe with noble intentions but it's still not quite what the meaning is. If you look at verses 31 and 32, and you see those together as one thing, what is the truth that will make us free? It's, it's what Jesus talks about it at, at the beginning of that. If you continue in my word, what is the truth that will make us free? His word. Verse 31 and 32 go together. Uh, remember biblical interpretation? What's that important C word? That means you look at what's connected to a verse in question. Context. Context. Yeah. And there are many contexts. There's, you know, you know, what's in the verse before and the verse after. What's the immediate context in the scripture? There's the context of the book and what kind of book it might be. There's the context that this is part of Holy Scripture. Uh, all of that is context. There's the cultural context, too. Uh, but uh, that you see verse 31 and 32 together, that's con the, the context. That tells you what is the truth that will set us free if we continue in his word. Uh, we are really his disciples. Uh, anybody familiar with Veggie Tales? Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber. And, uh, and uh, there was one of their programs, I think it was uh, Larry Boy and the Fib from Outer Space. Junior Asparagus tells a lie and it grows. And at the end, uh, Bob and Larry come on the screen and they say, uh, what's our verse for the day? Uh, John 8:32. you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So don't lie, kids, because lying is bad. Is that the point of the verse? No, uh, the truth will set you free is not about not lying and telling the truth. By the way, telling lies is still a bad thing, but verse 32 is not talking about that. It's talking about continuing in his word, the truth of the word that points us to Jesus, that sets us free. Uh, then, verse 33, uh, somebody tell me what, what's wrong with verse 33. Uh, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We are Abraham's descendants and we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say you will be set free? What's wrong with that verse? They forgot their 
Okay, so from about 1800 to 1400 BC, they were slaves in Egypt. And then. Slaves in Assyria and Babylon. Okay, and that, that was what, 586 uh, until well, 500 or so. Uh, yeah, they were slaves in Babylon. And what was their current situation? Slaves to the Romans. Slaves to the Romans are occupied by the Romans. So they're ignoring that slavery. And if you think that's bad, the next verse shows you they're ignoring an even worse slavery. Uh, verse 34, Jesus answers, Amen, amen, I tell you. Everyone who keeps committing sin is a slave to sin. Ooh, that's connected to go and sin no more, isn't it? Everyone who keeps committing sin is a slave to sin. But a slave does not remain in the family forever. A son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because there's no place for my word in you. I am telling you what I've seen at the side of the father. As for you, you do what you have heard at the side of your father. Okay, here Jesus is taking that word father and kind of throwing it back and forth to get their attention. And he's going to drop a bomb on them in just a minute. Uh, the thing about everyone who keeps committing sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the family forever. Uh, are you going to get ahead? Even getting ahead with sin, is sin going to serve you? No. Uh, it, it's something that masters you. It's not something that's going to serve you. That's what verse 35 is about. A son does remain forever. God wants to call us his children. That was in chapter 1. Those who believe in his name, he gives the right to be children of God. Um, so, uh, looking at verse 38, where he says, I do what I've seen from my father, and you do what you've seen from your father. And in their pride, they say, our father is Abraham. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard at the side of God. Abraham did not do this. You are doing the works of your father. He's saying you are, God is not your father. You have a different one. They don't quite get it. They say, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. If God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. Indeed, I have not come on my own, but he sent me. There that is again. Why do you not understand my message? It's because you are not able to listen to my word. And here he drops the bomb. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want what your to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and did not remain standing in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, uh, whenever he lies, he speaks from what is his because he is a liar and the father of lying. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who of you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God listens to what God says. The reason you do not listen is you do not belong to God. So just think of 
red faces and maybe hair standing up on the back of their necks. Uh, you belong to your father, the devil. That's why you're not holding to the truth. Uh, and then, remember, did I talk about logical fallacies last time? About things people say to, to try to change the subject or to, to try to strengthen their case, and it, 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 it's called a fallacy because it doesn't do it. Uh, Jesus says, you belong to your father, the devil, and then the Jews responded, are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Are they really answering Jesus' accusation? No, they're just throwing mud. Uh, and, oh, there was a a neighbor girl used to ride to school with her all the time, and she used to, for stuff like that, she'd say, what you say is what you are. Uh, but Jesus answers, I do not have a demon. On the contrary, I honor the Father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Amen, amen, I tell you, if anyone holds on to my word, he will certainly never see death. So the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone holds to my word, he will never taste death. You are not greater than our father Abraham. He died and the prophets died. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me about whom you say he is our God. Yet you do not really know him, but I do know him. If I said I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him and hold on to his word. Your father Abraham was glad that he would see my day. He saw it and rejoiced. Jews replied, you aren't even 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, I tell you, amen, amen, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Then they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and left the temple area. I remember at a conference once, one of the pastors asked, with this passage, was Jesus, remember that the, what I am means, Exodus 3, I am who I am, and its connection to the name of God. When the Jews heard this, were, were they sort of hearing, uh, before Abraham was born, I am Jehovah, I am the eternal one. Remember I said, was, was the problem that Jesus was just misunderstood? No, they understood him completely and they didn't like it. Uh, are they misunderstanding him here when he says, before Abraham was born, I am? What kind of a claim is that really? Or what kind of who is Jesus? Uh, what kind of who is Jesus moment is this? Before Abraham was born, I am. Who is Jesus? God himself. Uh, and so they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. Uh, but we had a lot of who is Jesus here. The son of the father, the one who makes us children of God. Uh, he is the eternal one before Abraham. Okay. Now we got another miracle text in chapter 9, and we'll save that for next time. Okay, let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for revealing to us who you are.
We pray that we may continue in your word, remain in your word, and remain your disciples. Set your truth, that truth of your word in our hearts, that truth about who you truly are, and set us free, that day by day, regardless of what our struggles are, we remember that we are children of God because of you and that we are free because of you. 